Welcome to IntelliCast. I nailed it, didn't I, Brian? You got it. Right on the post. <laughs> One of these days, I'll just do it without commending myself. That's our new theme song. Andrew, what do you think of our new theme song? So, first of all, huge shout out to Steve Hansen from Phase 5 Research. I had never heard this song before, and he reached out to me and said, Hey, by the way, every time... Uh, you know, you email me, I get this song in my head. And I said, well, 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 Steve, we have a podcast that has intro music. Um, so yeah, shout out to Steve Hansen from from Phase 5 for giving that to us. I love it. Um, yeah. It might be a little bit on the nose. Yeah. But uh, I'm I'm all in. I'm all in. Yeah. By the way, that's Andrew DeSillis. He's our Vice President of Client Development. That's about his sixth or seventh time on the podcast. Hello, Andrew. Hello, hello. Happy to be here. Yeah, and, and Brian Peterson, thanks for joining as always. How's it going? Doing great. This episode brought to you by IntelliCast and EMI Research Solutions. Reach out to us at IntelliCast at EMI-RS.com. Uh, follow us on Twitter, EMI underscore research or IntelliCast1. You can leave a voicemail or text at 513-401-5463. Like us and share us on all of the different things. Um, today we're going to talk about some kind of, I guess, some trends in data quality, maybe, and some research news. Is there anything else we want to talk about? Any other current events we want to talk about, guys? Have y'all talked about the cicadas yet? <laughs> no. All right. So for those those not in the Midwest, let's describe what in the world is going on at some point. Yeah, let's do it. I can start because there are no cicadas in my neighborhood. So it is a normal day here up in Springboro. So oh. it's more affecting you guys. And in, in my neighborhood, um, on my block, there are no cicadas. When I go about two blocks away, it is deafening the cicadas. Like it is loud. I, th- I think it could drive people insane. It's unbelievable. And you don't see that many. Like, I guess they're all hidden in the trees and in the grass. If you're just kind of walking down the street, you think you're, I don't know what it is. So, so back up, back up. Because our friends in the West and in the Deep South probably have no idea what we're talking about. So. Yeah, tell them. There is an insect species called the cicada that they're quote-unquote larval stage, if you will, um, is 17 years. And they live underground the entire time. And then once every 17 years for three weeks, literally thousands and thousands of these things emerge from the ground. Yep. All they do for three weeks is sing and then die. And it's really almost creepy. I mean, not exaggerating. There is a probably inch thick pile of cicada skins underneath the tree in my front yard. Um, it's a little bit apocalyptic. I'm not going to lie. A little bit yeah. Old Testament plague going on. Yeah, it's weird for sure. People are eating them. You know, they're, I think they're about over. I think it lasts, what, about two weeks? Thank God, because they're, you know, they're all over the roads and the ground and the grass. They're just dead 
cicada carcass everywhere. It's kind of disgusting, but I guess it's good for birds and other predators. Yeah, I know uh, my kids love them. <laughs> yeah. I've kept my one-year-old from eating them, despite his best efforts. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I'm, I'm not a huge fan. I, I, I've got to mow the lawn later today, and it's going to be interesting. Yeah, it'll be see what happens with all of them. Yeah. And then we all saw each other this week in the office. That was fun. We did. Yeah, EMI is officially back in the office. Yeah, it's a little weird. All the weird things that happen with we're going back hybrid. I think we talked about this last episode. Two days a week. Um, you get to pick one of your days. The other day is like your team day. And so every day there's approximately half of the company in the office. Very weird. Um, you know, lots of things that you wouldn't think to think about. Like somebody doesn't have headphones and what do you do with meetings when half the people are in the office and half are still remote and you go into a conference room and who's not comfortable doing that? And man, it's weird, but it's, it's awesome to get back in front of people, I think. How do you, do you guys enjoy it? Yeah, I mean, it's great to see everyone, you know, and, and EMI has been growing quite a bit, actually. I think we hired two new research management positions and four new salespersons who had never met anyone. Yep, and a couple of cards too. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Another marketing person, another insights person. So, you know, it's great to see all those people in person, do some training in person. I will say I did not miss my commute. Yeah. It took me an hour and 45 minutes to get home the other day. Oh, my gosh. Anyone who's from our area in Ohio, there's just perpetual construction. I have no idea why um, it takes five to 10 years to do something around here, but here we are. Uh, I think uh, Brian Peterson, I think the coolest thing about going back to the office is the new camera that we got <laughs> yeah. to deal with the, some people in the office, some people not. You're officially the IT guy to, you know, tell the listeners about this, uh, you know, we're, we're living in 2030 here with this <laughs> webcam. Closer, maybe 2018, 2017. We're behind the time. <laughs> um, no. Cool. Trying to get it, since we are hybrid, trying to get it so it's a little more interactive with people half in the office, half at their homes. So we got an OWL conference room phone. So it's speaker, microphone, 360 panoramic camera focuses in on people who are talking. We've had it going for just over a week now. It seems to be a hit with everybody as we're using it. So what do you guys think of it? I've yet to see the panoramic view um, on my screen. I've always been in the office when we've done the meetings, but it looks really cool. It's pretty cool technology that we probably had at least 10 people standing up in a circle at a room and somehow this camera made it look like it's one long line with its panoramic ability. That's pretty cool. And, it, you know, focusing on who's talking, it seems like a pretty cool experience. That's that's my – and the audio is incredible, so that helps. Yeah, I would say that the audio is the biggest thing because we used it for our webinar last week, and it was clear as a bell for people who were listening. Um, even there's no longer having to crowd around – one little conference room phone or set up a variety of different mics to try to do something. It's just sitting in the middle of the room and you just talk normal and it's great. Yep. So yeah, owl for anyone dealing with the same challenges. 
Yeah, this segment brought to you by Al. Hey, there we go. Honorary sponsor. <laughs> Should we move on to some trends? Let's do it. Well, we've done literally zero prep here. We're just going to kind of play it by ear. And I thought maybe the way to kind of kick this off would be that promoting we're doing a webinar. We're joining a web a um, town hall on Friday, June 11th through the Insights Association. And the title of it is Data Quality Combating New Threats. And man, it's an all-star panel. It's Lisa Wadding Brown of Innovate, who we recently had on. She's incredible. Judith Passingham, who's been a researcher forever. She's semi-retired, but um, she's currently the chair of the Professional Standards Committee for SMR. And the reason she's on it is because SMR recently released updated guidelines for buyers of sample. And so those of you that buy sample out there, um, it's called, we're, we're calling it the SMR 37. But you can... Um, look at guidelines, and we haven't updated ours. I don't think most sample providers have yet because there's so many new additions to these questions for online sample buyers due to the changes in um, sampling in the past few years. So there's 37 questions that every sample provider will be filling out, and Judith is an expert on that, so she's on it. Andy Smith, um, he's the vice president of Consumer Insights at Flowers Foods. Um, he's awesome. You'll love him because I think he has some really strong opinions on data quality and um, he won't hold back, which will hopefully um, ensure that we have a lively discussion. And he's also on case. Case is the, oh gosh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to butcher this. The um, It's not a council. It's a something for the advancement of sampling excellence. It's a, not a committee. It's a something else. Consortium, maybe? No, it's not a consortium. It's something else with a C. I should know that. But it's basically a group of people getting together to try to improve sample in the industry. But Andy's on it. And it'll be moderated by Melanie Courtright, who is the CEO of the Insights Association. And we had our kickoff call yesterday. And basically, we're going to be talking about um, new threats to data quality that have emerged in the past months or years. Um, there's vulnerabilities that have appeared in our landscape and other disturbing trends, which should concern marketing research. It sounds kind of scary, but I thought maybe Andrew and I could kind of um, help me prep for this thing. I kind of have an outline of what I wanted to talk about, but you know, sampling has changed. I mean, it's changing so fast. I mean, Andrew, you've been in the industry for only a few years. I bet you've seen massive changes just in sampling just since you've entered, right? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. You know, it's been about six years since I started doing this and drastic, drastic changes in how we do things, where we get the sample from. And most notably, it, it's in the performance of data collection, right? The, the quality, the feasibility, the speed, the pricing, all, all of those operational pieces, I think, have changed drastically since, you know, 2016. Yeah. So like a quick few things that I think have changed since then. Um, um, let's see, programmatic sampling. I don't think we knew the word programmatic six years ago. And now that's all we talk about all day long is programmatic and APIs are part of our, not just day to day, it's just constant things we talk about. Um, automated sampling, DIY sampling, um, programmatic, everybody's connecting to each other. Um, it's created lots of, I mean, certainly it's created efficiencies. There's lots of positives that it's created, but it's also created a lot of challenges, um, which we could get to if we want. Um, the sample marketplace led by um, 
now Lucid, um, which kind of created a, a place where buyers and sellers can kind of get together. And, you know, you're not just working with one sample company. You're not even working with only sample companies. You're working with just people that are part of traffic willing to take surveys. And so that added a whole new element to our whole industry. That's probably within the last, maybe a little longer than six. It's probably closer to 10 years. Um, what else am I missing in terms of big changes? Oh, well, the um, data quality digital fingerprinting dashboards. Until a couple of years ago, we only really had one. And now we have this almost, we call it an arms race. We've had all the people on, but you know, Opinion Route has a new product and Research Defender. We've had Vignesh on and his team on a bunch. Um, and there's this new, every sample company and thinks about this all day long is digital fingerprinting and how to stop fraud and how to stop duplicates and how to ensure that we're giving the best people and blocking the wrong people. Those are a few, Andrew. Do you want to talk about any of those? Or I probably missed a handful as well. Yeah, I mean, you know, one of the biggest things I think to talk about is the changes in in quality and access just over the last year. And a year might even be too long. In the last six months, I have talked to so many different researchers and so many different panel providers who have seen notable changes since January, really. And, and, and so to dive into some of those issues, I think it, you know, we'd, we'd be wrong not to. Well, let, let me try to set the stage and maybe your version is different than my version, Andrew, which is fine. Um, here's how we've been talking about it. Um, yes, you're 100% correct. That has happened. And, the time frame is weird because first of all, I think time is I, time is really hard for me to even understand anymore. I don't know if days have become weeks and weeks have become days and months or years now. I, the time period is weird to me, but you know, let's just start with maybe when the COVID hit about a year ago, this was outside of our con- industry's control. I think it's part of the story though, is that demand for research about this time last year in June of 2020, demand was down. People were a little bit skeptical, probably May and June, and maybe even in July. People were like conserving budgets, seeing how long this was going to last, seeing when we got a vaccine. Everything was up in the air. A lot of research was down. We saw the industry slow down reports of, I don't know, 25%, which that's pretty significant. And it's not massive, but it's a significant um, slowdown. Sample providers in return, I had to make some tough decisions because of that. The demand is down. They're probably going to cut recruiting budgets. They start recruiting recruiting budgets, but of course they would. That's what I would do. And then the demand came back so fast. It came back by August, September of last year. We were not prepared as an industry for this demand to come back so fast. Um, sampling wasn't ready. We didn't have enough respondents. Demand was way ahead of supply. Um we thought it might be six months to recover. I think it recovered pretty quickly, though it mm-hmm. recovered within about, a, I don't know, maybe a month. And then now we have another surge going on earlier this year. And, you know, all the things that I mentioned in kind of the preamble are part of the story. But COVID certainly affected how sample companies reacted and are continuing to react um, to the kind of fluctuation in demand and that was kind of another preamble, Andrew, to probably what you're going to get to, right? Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, and we probably talked about this before and everyone is probably aware, um, but, you know, just kind of my take on 
the suppression of demand for research and then why it came back so quickly yeah. as well. You know, there were absolutely industries that were directly impacted, right? You know, anything in restaurant, anything in travel and hospitality, yes. they immediately, you know, actually could not afford to do the research. Yep. Like you said, you know, there were other industries and, and other really large players that were conserving that budget. You know, the markets took a nosedive. Everything was changing. It was the absolute death of trendability, right? Yep. And they're holding back their budgets. Well, now all of a sudden it's September, it's October. We're staring down the barrel of the end of fiscal years and they need to burn through this budget. Industries that were not negatively affected, finance, B2B, um, you know, all of those different types that are heavy players in our world, media, um, you know, they all returned with a vengeance is probably too pejorative of a word, but they said, hey, we've got research to do. And all of that came back at the same time, pretty much. And so, you know, and especially too, you know, we have to remember as well that, you know, it was a um, political polling year. Yeah. <laughs> so, and all of that came back at the same time. Yeah. Um, and so I think that that caused, you know, there was a lag time because in order to have your recruiting budgets come back up you have to win the work do the work and get paid right and so all of that demand comes back there's not enough money to increase the supply accordingly everything kind of starts coming in we try to catch up and you know i'm sure you have an opinion on this in a second but i think that it's either the speed with which panels recruited. I don't know if any corners were cut. I don't know if it just ties into the average tenure of a respondent. Yeah. Um, but right now what we're seeing, and I'm getting ahead, I want to let you talk, but we're almost seeing whiplash from that in quality and in availability right now, sitting here in Q2 of 2021 from that surge that happened in you know Q4 2020 and especially in Q1 of 2021. Um, I'm going to let you chime in before I get to sort of the current state of affairs, though. No, you're, I 100% agree with you. you. You framed it really well. And I think you're 100% right. And I'm not sure if many sample companies would come out and say it, but from our perspective, I think the way they responded was admirable. And, but it did affect panel compositions. It did affect that ratio of tenured to non-tenured respondents. Um, it affected the ratio of validated respondents to non-validated respondents. And when I say validated, I mean, they haven't, most of these new respondents haven't taken 20 surveys, right? So we can get a good handle on who they are. They haven't completed all their profiling. They haven't been gone through the rigor of all these clients evaluating their, their data and approving them. And so I wouldn't say it's cutting corners. It's kind of a natural process. It just kind of got expedited and exponentially so fast. And we're, we're just now probably hopefully getting to re a recovery. Um, but I think you're 100% right. That's, 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 it's been tough from a quality perspective. Right. And I think one of the keys to, you know, it's not just, 
hey, there are all of these bad respondents, right? You know, there are a lot of panel companies who have been doing this for a really long time and they have their recruiting down pat. One thing that I think is happening is exactly what you said, that the profiling depth of most of these targets that are you know in high demand and especially granular targets that we go after any kind of b2b any kind of patient especially patient targeting with sub levels right like stages of cancer yes um, patients so on and so forth right it's just you know when somebody joins a panel the panel has to get their demographics and then they have to recoup their cost of acquisition. So they're probably, let's say that the average person will answer a hundred questions before dropping off, right? Or maybe they'll answer, you know, one profile or one survey, then they're gone for three weeks. You're not going to ask them a hundred profiling questions. You're going to ask them what you need and then send them to a survey. So, Then when you have all of this demand for more granular targeting, or maybe you just have an incredible demand. I've been seeing some crazy sample sizes recently and you have this. And so the panels have to respond by sending their closest targeting, their best match to what we're asking for. And even if they're doing pre-screening, even if some of these other elements are coming into play that kind of make it effective, we know that the less targeted sample is in proportion to who will ultimately qualify, the worse the quality gets, right? And, And we've absolutely seen that come into play. At least I have on my projects, right? Yeah. And, and you know, you made one comment too, where you said, you know, you don't think that a lot of people would come out and say this. I've had some egregious quality issues. Yes. Last couple months. And everyone listening, if you have, reach out to us. I want to talk to you about it. Um, Some of them so bad that, you know, I've gone through multiple iterations of 30 minute, hour long, 90 minute calls with all of our top panel providers. So, hey, what's going on? especially with panels that I'm having feasibility problems, but not quality problems. So the panels who are sort of doing this right noticed this, they caught it, and they purged their panels. And so that ties into the second element of this, which is that probably in the last 30 to 60 days, everything is moving slowly everything seems to be falling short. And that's that whiplash that I was talking about, right? We had this huge surge in recruiting. Some panels are getting away with not purging it, right? But there are other panels who are really doing this right. They had to go in, they had to cut, you know, entire portions of their panel that came from recruiting sources that weren't great. They had to ratchet down on those, you know, what kind of removal reason gets you kicked out. Um, maybe they're only going to send respondents with five plus surveys to certain clients um, and others are going to go other places. Right. Um, But I've been seeing an effect on feasibility as well, Brian, it's not just the quality, it's the feasibility. And I think it's whiplash to correct the quality issues that we've seen from that massive recruiting effort in Q1. Yep. All correct. Great, great points. And one thing to add is that sample companies have done a great job of understanding response rates 
And now we have people with a little bit unpredictable response rates. And so that's one of the reasons why feasibility is probably a challenge that it was much more predictable and manageable when you had the majority of your panel, you kind of knew them and knew who they were. And now it's kind of flipped. So feasibility is, there's a wide range in feasibility. It's very common to see huge fluctuations between what a panel says they can do, what a panel actually does. That's always kind of existed, but it's just rampant right now. And another thing I'll say, I agree that quality has been a challenge over the past few months, and there's lots of reasons behind that. But also when I think about quality, I and I know you do too, because we talk about this every day as well, to me, quality also means um, offering our clients the ability to make the right business decision. And we've seen like client KPIs with huge fluctuations the past few months, like brand awareness. We've seen very common to see a brand awareness shift of 20 to 30 points over the past few months. Coke's brand awareness did not go down 20 points <laughs> in the last three months, right? United Airlines brand awareness didn't have this huge shift in the past few months. There's something going on in the type of people that we're talking to, which affects, in my opinion, the quality of it. And so, the, I mean, we could go down any of these paths. It's a very complex issue, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I did want to chime in too and, you know, sort of salute every panel I've talked to has been really, really transparent and informative on all of these issues, right? So I don't want anyone listening to think that, you know, us sitting here is is sample sourcing consultants, right? From our ivory tower that we're saying everyone managing panels made some mistake here because everyone I've talked to has been knowledgeable. They've been transparent. They've provided actionable, actionable feedback. Um, so I did want to, you know, put that asterisk on everything that we've said that I do think the sample industry is responding appropriately to this. Yes. But unfortunately, that doesn't make the challenges go away yet. It's going to take some time to correct. Absolutely. Um, man, we, we went so much longer and more thorough than I thought we would. I feel like we could do this for another hour and a half. You know what, Brian? It, it's my fault. I'm the sales guy. You're not <laughs> going to get in and out of a conversation with me that fast. No, it's um, it's such a, this is such an important conversation that – you are having, I'm having, we are having with our clients literally on a daily basis. We're talking about this kind of stuff. And so if you're listening and you're experiencing some weird stuff in the data, some weird stuff in sampling, um, this is our perspective on it. We only, this is the tip of the iceberg. Um, reach out to Andrew or I or Brian. And if you're just seeing something weird, because we could probably help. We see it from so many different angles so many different sample providers. And so we can kind of combine all that to, to what's really happening in the industry. That's really what EMI does. And we're so fortunate to be kind of in the seat to oversee the whole industry and see what's kind of happening. Anything you want to add to that, Andrew? Yeah, you know, I would say uh, if you're listening to this, there's only marginally additional insights that we can add. It is you know, this is this is pretty broad, it, but as far as diagnosing the issues, yeah. right? As far as troubleshooting the cause, but what we can do at EMI at least is that we can help alleviate some of the symptoms, 
right? You know, we have lots of different quality solutions in place. We have services that can help mitigate the pain of poor quality. Obviously, as sourcing consultants, we have, you know, immense reach because we have the ability to leverage so many panels at once. Um, so, you know, we might not be able to fix the problems themselves, but we can definitely fix the pain that they cause. So a um, little bit of a pitch there. Sorry. I didn't mean to go, didn't mean to go salesy there, but. Probably you know, salesy. I mean, we're consultative. And so right. sometimes it's just ask, send us a question. We'll answer it. We'll help you out. There's no charge for that. You know? Right. Yeah. There, I, I'm, I'm having a conversation next week where, you know, this company said, Hey, we have an exclusive agreement for someone to buy our sample. We can't work with you. And I said, great, let's put together an hour long session to talk about quality. (laughs) This is what we do all day. And we're really passionate about it and reach out to us. We're, We're happy to talk. We're happy to share what we know. Awesome. Well, if you want more information about what I'll speak about in my 10 to 15 minutes on this town hall, it's, uh, it's through the Insight Association. I'm sure Brian will put it in the show notes. It's June 11th from 1 to 2, and we'll be right back after this. Welcome back. Hope you enjoyed that. Um, now we're going to go through the news like normal. We have quite a few news stories, which I'm also unprepared for, but I will have a strong opinion on. Um, Brian, take it away. Yeah, so our first story Habis's latest meaningful brand study has found that more than 70% of consumers have little faith that brands will deliver on their promises. Um, they found that only 39% of people in North America found any brand trustworthy. It was actually even lower in Asia at 24%. What do you guys think about that? Um, you want to start off with Andrew or me? I'm happy to start off. Yeah, go um, ahead. I think this is really interesting because in the last couple of years, I think that we've seen a real shift from consumers from, you know, buying based on it's kind of a big brand, a reputable brand that those things we're attributing to trust, right? And they're shifting to wanting a brand experience, Right. You know, as we start making more and more and more purchases on social media and things like that, people want a brand that they think specifically aligns to them. They want, you know, I I ordered a um, a polo the other day and there was a handwritten thank you note in it. Right. Oh, wow. The package that I received. And I think that people really, really want that kind of experience now. Um, Brands are engaging more directly with individual consumers than ever before. And it's interesting to me because I think what that says, that's what consumers want. And if we're seeing this level of detraction or dissatisfaction with the brands, I think it means that despite their best efforts, brands aren't meet, they're not rising to that challenge, right? They're not meeting that need for that personal relationship or that experience that consumers are demanding and you know i if i think back to most of the purchases that i've made over the last couple weeks a lot of them have been like from ads on instagram they've been you know smaller companies smaller vendors and and maybe people are having less trust for the larger brands um that is of course omitting the 
unreasonable amount of Amazon packages that show up to my house in a given week. Right. But you know what I'm saying, right? Yeah. You've been in consumer research for a long time, Brian. <laughs> what do you think about that hypothesis, that take? No, I agree. I think there's certainly a shift in consumer buying behavior. I agree with everything you're saying. I think to even build on that, there's some, especially in Europe and it's moving to America, where there's a little bit of backlash towards marketers that marketing is almost seen as, I wouldn't say evil, but manipulative. And marketers are trying to get, convince you to do something rather than be altruistic and things like that. It's, it's, I think that people are moving towards brands and behaviors that fit their value system and therefore companies that fit their value system. Um, and that's, that's a pretty big shift. I don't think that, I think most brands, most in the past were very middle of the road, didn't take a stand on issues and now you see brands like, I mean, you've seen it recently in the U.S. and in Europe just take pretty significant stands on societal, cultural issues. And that, in some ways, is divisive because you're probably alienating a decent portion of your customer base. But I think that's almost what people want. People want a brand that fits their values. And maybe I took it a step too far um, and Brian, feel free to jump in too. I'm sure you have an opinion on this. Um, I think that's part of this. I mean, they kind of mentioned a little bit of it in the article that I read, but Brian, what do you think? I think you hit at one of the key points there. People want to spend their money on brands or with organizations that fit their, that reflect their values and beliefs. So as you've seen, you mentioned like there are companies becoming more, Having a stand, we won't say more political, just having a stand on different issues. Well, people on the other side of that may say, you know what, I don't want to shop with them anymore. But then the people who are on that side, you see that increase. So I think part of that, you see that. But I think the other piece is, I think maybe people are being a little jaded. Yeah. You mentioned like that marketing piece. It's a little jaded. Okay. Yeah. They say that, but yeah, I don't really know if they really stand that because you can see. Just, I'm going to think like automotive. If you think of brands that are supposed to be, they've built their brand on like trust and durability or stuff like that. How many recalls have we seen across the board? Right. You have a recall and your brand is built on like reliability and trust. Well, that's the opposite. Well, now I don't have faith that you're going to deliver that. So I think we see that as well. I think maybe people are being a little jaded. Because while it says they don't have faith in the brands, there are some brands you're not seeing that reduction, like that mass reduction that you would think if, okay, well, if I don't have faith in this brand, 70% of my customers are going to go away. Well, no, maybe they're they're coming in maybe with their eyes a little bit clearer, like, all right, yeah, they say they're going to do this, but they're not, but I'm still going to buy it. Yeah. Maybe they have less less feeling around, okay, yeah. They, they're going to say what they say, and I'm, I'm going to take that with a grain of salt. Right. I think it's kind of a combination of all the things we've mentioned here. Yeah, Andrew, well, what are your thoughts on that? We, I'm sure you agree with that, right? Yeah, absolutely. I yeah. think, you know, Brian, you're, you're right, right on the nose there. 
Cool. Man, that's about the longest we've spent on a news story in a long time. It has. It's good to have a, a third voice on, don't you think? Yeah, it also gives you time to think. Yeah. <laughs> in our second story, Seema Vasa, the Paradigm Sample co-founder, has joined the U.S. Advisory Board of Aust- of Australian market research technology platform, Glow, to support its North American expansion plans. What do you think? I mean, obviously, you know, SEMA's been a friend of us for a long time. I love SEMA. Um, I don't know how she has time to do that. She's on a million boards. She does a million things. And plus Australia, I guess because she's got two, she's filled up her day of the U.S. and the European time zones the only thing left for her to do is to start working like the Australia and the Asia time zones. That's the only thing I can put here. Um, and 11 to like 3 a.m. Right. time frame. <laughs> right. But she has a gap there. No, but she, I mean, she's, she's brilliant. I've worked with her, known her for a while. And so I'll speak highly of her. I don't know, Andrew, if you have any thoughts on that either. No, not, not much input there, except, you know, I've seen the same thing that you have that she she's uh, omnipresent right yes. <laughs> which is fantastic fantastic lots of respect for her yep all right in our next story friends of the podcast the guys over at measure protocol the blockchain the blockchain based marketplace have launched a new solution called storefront to provide access to consumer based behavioral data relating to what individuals are doing consuming and buying what do you think it sounds interesting. I'm basically kind of reading from what they say they can do, but it it looks like people will have direct access to uh, explore metrics with their device usage. So what they're purchasing on their devices and all kinds of metrics and consumption in it. That's We've talked about this forever, is that that's kind of the next phase of insights is when you get people's opinions and you align that with what they actually do. And this will be verified and validated they're really smart people over there at Measure, and so I. This is a great move, and this is exactly what we'd expect from them. Yeah, I think this is something that a lot of my clients would be very interested in, right? So I, I'm curious to see, you know, how it rolls out, how successful it is. Uh, but it's also going to be a little bit of a Pandora's box that maybe we don't want to open, right? Yeah. Once we start aligning these, you know, how does this data look compared to self-expressed behaviors? Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. There's been a yeah. lot of research on that. Conversations. Yeah. We, we know it's off what people state, what they do, they claim what they do versus what they actually do. We know it's different. We've always kind of known that it's just, yeah. How big is that gap? If you say you bought two Cokes last week and then we have data that says you bought 200 Cokes last week, that'll be problematic, right? <laughs> um so yeah, but the, that is going to be the key is to certainly setting expectations when we have actual data versus claim data, letting people know it's not going to be accurate. Um, yeah. Well, is it going to cause changes in people's behavior then knowing that if I'm part of this and I get involved, like you take the Coke example, well, someone's going to think I drink way too much Coke, so I'm going to buy less because... I might get that imp- that I might get looked down on or there's that opinion being given or judged which is why you see some of that gap like hey I'm going to put myself it's that psychological component of trying to put yourself in the best light like oh well I don't want to say I drink 200 cokes cuz probably leaning towards diabetes and yep there's um 
that's a case of Coke a day, man. We're, <laughs> we're certainly – Chance um, the diabetes. We call that social desirability bias, and that certainly exists. And I think that that bias will be even bigger when people know that they're being kind of monitored a little bit. And I think Andrew said it when like we, we get open Pandora's box. I mean, people will have to agree to terms. It's a matter of how much of the fine print they read and how if they know how we're using the data. There's going to be lots of privacy, um, you know, and all the the regulatory challenges around that. Um, but I'm sure they're working through. They've been doing that for years. And so that's certainly a challenge, but um, I'm sure they'll figure it out as well. All right. In our second to last story, Sint has acquired the Berlin-based market research firm Gapfish. With the acquisition, Sint will be able to enhance its online sample offering to customers giving access to an additional audience of more than 500,000 highly profiled, double opted in, premium quality research respondents across Germany, Austria, and Switzerland. I know we were talking about this off air, but what do you guys think? Yeah, I'll, I'll let Andrew maybe start on this one. What his thoughts are, he works more closely to certainly Simping Gapfish than I do. Yeah, you know, I I don't think we've worked with Gapfish very much over the last couple of years, but you know, in my first kind of 3 years in the industry, they were my go-to for yeah. Germany. Um, you know, the description in that press release, you know, premium, well-profiled, good access in those markets. I remember all of that about Gapfish. You know, I think they're a fantastic panel. Um, you know, happy for Scent that they, you know they, they bought them. Certainly happy for whoever owns Gapfish that they were acquired, right? right. Um, but you know, it, it's interesting to me because you know when we were, Scent bought P two because P2 had a great developer team. They had APIs all over the place. That was a technology play to purchase them. Yep. Since business model does not necessitate buying panels. So right. why would they buy Gapfish instead of <laughs> you know forming an API with them and adding the sample to the pool? So either there's something I missed here, maybe Gapfish wouldn't build an API and they yeah. so much demand in those markets, it made sense. I don't know. It's a Gapfish is a great panel. Yeah. I'm absolutely happy that so, they're going to be in scent. But the acquisition doesn't make sense to me. I'm glad you mentioned the P2 acquisition because that was the time when when we talked about it. We had almost do an I think we did an apology video afterwards because yeah. we were so confused about it. And really, it was the technology. Um, so I'm glad you brought that up, Andrew. It's some great points about. I, yeah, I, I don't know what Gapfish has other than maybe they, maybe Synth is just investing in the panel. Maybe they got a good deal on it. You never know what's happened to companies over the past year and a half, right? And Brian, I know you're, you have something to say as well. Yeah, I'm, I've been thinking about this since we were chatting prior to hitting record on this one about this. Could it be that Sint is loading up assets to start making plays like Dynata does in a direct-to or a single-source type mode that, hey, I, you have an exclusive agreement with us. I know we've seen those in the past. Are they looking at more that maybe they've got something that's coming up that they know they're going to need that additional 
feasibility in though in that in that kind of European area. Right. That, hey, we got we got a big we got a whale on the hook, but we need this, so let's go spend the money get this because then it's gonna whatever it costs us, we're gonna triple it back in revenue if we land this. Yeah, one thing the article states, at least the one I'm reading, says this that it aligns with the strategy outlined in their IPO process earlier this year um, to extend its global footprint through M and A activities. That's exactly what you're saying. Um, perhaps we're overthinking it. Um, yeah, like you said, Andrew, that's a great panel, and you add that asset. That's that's a great um, great thing to have. Absolutely. And yeah, and you know, in order to avoid another um, apology message with, you know, <laughs> with, with what we've said, anyone from Scent, anyone from Gapfish, reach out to us at, you know, I, I want to know, and we certainly want to set the record straight. So awesome. Yeah. Interesting. Our final story today is another acquisition story. Escalant has acquired Grail Insights, a strategic consultancy. Um, as part of the deal, Grail's CEO, Rob Stone, will become Escalant's chief strategy officer. What do you think? Yeah, honestly, I don't know much about Grail Insights, but Escalant has been making some obviously very strategic moves over the past couple of years. Um, they're very consultative. They're a powerhouse in analytics. And, um, you know, we, we know some of those people pretty well. And so hopefully this is a great partnership. I always love it when they... They put um, the the former president into the C-suite immediately. I think that's a great thing to do when there's mergers and acquisitions, and um, it sounds like a good partnership there. Andrew, what do you think? Uh, yeah, I don't have much to add there. Um, you know, I've been – Tony Brown has been working with Morpace, obviously, which is now part of Escalant for years and years, um, and, you know, we only have – the best of things to say about them. I had the pleasure of talking to some folks from their sourcing team recently and just, just really smart researchers. So I have no doubt that this is a great acquisition and there'll be more good things to come um, from Escalant with this asset. Awesome. Well, that rounds out our market research news for the week. Uh, Brian, I know we have the insights association panel discussion webinar that you're going to be on coming up June 11th. Yep. Um, we will have the link in the show notes. Anything else you want, we should cover today. I think we should mention, we did another quality webinar last week with Jason Enderhees and Mary Draper. You can get that on our website and you know, we, we should start promoting our next quality um, discussion, which we'll be having at, with measure protocol and our friends in Canada with Arundhati later this month as well, right? Right. Yep. And we're going to see if I'm going to try to line up getting Arundhati on the podcast again as a kind of preview episode. Awesome. Well, cool. Andrew, hey, thanks for joining us. Um, um, we plan thanks on 20, 25 minutes. And if you're still listening, we really appreciate it. Andrew and I can go long-winded, especially when we're talking about data quality stuff. Um, so hopefully you enjoyed it. We'd love any feedback you have. And we'll talk to you shortly. Thanks, everybody. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.